podcast delves into the minds of some of today's most ambitious and successful entrepreneurs. They have grown businesses that are disrupting the way we live, how and what we buy, and the way companies are run. How have the life experiences of this generation informed their success and what can we learn from them? I'm Catherine Eakers, and in this series, I'm going to be talking to five different entrepreneurs about how they took an existing market or business model and innovated it to suit changing needs, how they rolled with the punches and disrupted the status quo to reflect and even affect the world we live in today. We hear the phrase next generation a lot, but we wanted to talk to people who are facing these challenges right now. Not the next generation, but generation now. This week, we're talking to entrepreneur and wunderkind Ross Bailey, the founder and CEO of Appear Here, an online marketplace for short-term retail space. Welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming and joining us today. Also joining us is Rowena Marshall, a partner in our banking and finance team who acts for a range of real estate clients in various sectors, including retail. Hello, Hello, Rowena. Hello. And I'm very sad you haven't called me a wunderkind. <laughs> <laughs> I can if you want me to. <laughs> I'll Everyone slot else it in somewhere. <laughs> So, Ross, you set up a beer here at the age of, what, 22, 23? Yeah, 21, 22. Yeah. What, what drove you to start a business at such a young age, do you think? I left school at 16, so I had no sort of A-levels or qualifications. I think part of it might have been necessity. Um, but I never saw it as business. I was always just playing with mates and wanting the next week to do something a little bit bigger with a little bit more people involved. And it was all to me just about having fun. And I guess in many ways, business was just the idea of getting this group of friends together and always coming up with new ideas. And, you know, I left 16, school at 16. I did, I think, what every entrepreneur does that's so embarrassing and quite cringe, where I started to do nightclubs. So I'd rent out a nightclub and I'd get under... 16s to go there and we'd order in like sort of non-alcoholic bottles of what we called champagne but essentially were fizzy grape juice (laughs) and put sparklers on the top and we really created these what we thought were these amazing nights of how we imagined going out to a nightclub would be like Um, and to be honest they were probably better Um, (laughs) this is when you were what like 17 i was literally like 16 yeah, I, for, I used to go to those nights. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> well, I might might have seen you there. Um, but no, so that happened. And then yeah, I moved to London at 16 and I randomly applied. I, I read in the newspaper that Peter Jones, the dragon on Dragon's Den, was doing a school and he wanted to pick 20 kids to go and live in a hotel. And literally you would be taught by entrepreneurs for six months. And I turned up and there were sort of hundreds of kids there. And they picked 20 of us. And then we went and we lived in a hotel for six months. And we were literally taught by Peter. um, That's pretty amazing. Who sort of stayed a friend today. And so it was this amazing experience. And then I was just always doing my own little ideas. And and the way that Appear Here came about was that um, I... And this is a very long-winded answer to your question. But I'm going to keep (laughs) going with it now. But I I went to an... Before setting up here, I then went to this um, advertising course and I guess I got to the age where I'd like felt a bit depressed that all my friends were at university and had I made the right decision and I tried applying for some and they all obviously said no because I had no qualifications and I was doing these little businesses and I saw this ad school that again was a course and it said like you know it was for once you'd gone to university so it was sort of post-grad and I thought well if I get in there for a few months it would be in my head anyway that I've 
sort of progress past university. Yeah. Um, so I apply, and they've got a. It's in an old church in the middle of Vauxhall, and the guy who teaches it wears multicolored trousers, and he's on a Segway with a bulldog. <laughs> so he's like the most random guy, and he actually invented the video web banner. So he's like this crazy technological nuts guy that was sort of always smoking. And he created this advertising school and I got in and I was there for six months and he had this sort of way about him where every day he would stand on stage and he'd sort of scream to the room, we sell or we die. <laughs> uh, and um, he, he was just sort of this bizarre character in Ad, in Adland. And, and, you know, he's now, this school is now 10 years old and he's created the most successful advertising school in the world. And he's still so there, he's still leading it. And um, people from all sorts of backgrounds go there. And... He had a rule where he said every morning before breakfast, you've got to come up with three ideas. So you've got to come up with three ideas before breakfast. So every single morning, the first few days you do it, it's quite easy. But after a week, it's really hard because you've like exhausted every possible yeah. idea. But then this really magic thing starts happening, which is that when you walk around, you start just looking at everything because you're like, God, I need to get up in the morning. <laughs> I need some and food. If, and <laughs> I need to eat. I need to get to you know wherever I'm going. And if you don't have these three ideas, you know you're you're in a difficult situation. So, um, I you know one day I was watching, you know, coming up with an idea for someone crossing the road, doing this, doing that, and I saw all these empty stores, and I just went you know, what if you did an Airbnb for empty shops? And that just became one of the ideas that I wrote down. I have in my phone literally from like 2011, 2012, a notes page from when I was at the school where every day there are just these random ideas. And, and believe me, like, thank some God. I, not some of them, 99% of them are horrific. What's your most horrific one, do you think? I mean, they were so like, you know, you are like, imagine if there was a drone that helps an old lady carry her bags across the road. Like They're just like bizarre things that you would come up with for the next day. Um, but so, I mean, they're not even worth repeating, sadly. They Someone's going to listen to this and say, that would be remember. a good idea. I think Let it me. is good. Yeah, it probably might have made me more money. Um, but, but I came up with this idea and then I forgot about it, right? Like it just is there on the notes, but it's funny that I found it years later. But it just shows that, you know, I guess you're being curious, you're training your mind to be curious, and those things sit in the back of your mind. Mm. And um, it was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. I'm getting towards the end of the story. <laughs> and um, I designed these T-shirts with the Queen's face and David Bowie stripes through them. And I started, you know, it was really easy. You can create an online website on Shopify, and I pressed a button, and within moments I could sell anywhere in the world. Um, and I sort of assumed that it would be that easy offline. And, you know, summer of 2012, it was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. like the weather was incredible. Yeah. The Olympics was happening. I was super young and I was just like, I want to be part of this yeah. moment. It was so a brilliant I, summer, wasn't it? it was yeah. Yeah. London at its best. So I um, found this little shop in Soho and was like, I'm going to convince the landlord to let me have it and it will be really easy. And I was naive. I was like, I bet you can just book it like a hotel room. And I didn't realise there were 20 leases and you did covenants. And there was all this complication. And that, you know, I eventually convinced the landlord. But what I realised was that, traditional retail in many ways was set up for businesses of a certain scale yeah um, what I realized was that although I could sell online instantly I was selling zero and what I realized was that the moment I did finally even though it sucked loads convince this landlord to let me open a store when I opened it suddenly we started doing incredibly well people were obsessed with the story they were obsessed with the brand they were yeah. obsessed that we were going to disappear in a few weeks and then my online site started to do really well as well yeah because um, I guess people 
admire their friend's T-shirt. They say, yeah, oh, I got it from this guy. And look, there's a website. Exactly, or and... someone puts it online and they yeah. share it and whatever. And it had this sort of halo effect. And then the T-shirts got banned by Buckingham Palace, genuinely. <laughs> but that's a whole, a whole other story. Did you receive a letter from Buckingham Palace? <laughs> I, we received a, a, a ceased and desist. And we had to send all of the, um, the T-shirts to their lawyers. But we sort of said that oh, we only printed 20. So we sold, we sent those and then we continued to sell the rest prohibition style out of the um, black market, the seller, no, of the shop. But it was amazing because people would come in and we were, ter- you know, we're like 19. So we're terrified that like, Someone's you know, actually it's gonna... clearly a big priority of the royal family that they're going to send like undercover police to, <laughs> to raid us. Undercover beef eaters. Yeah, 100%. So people were coming in and we would say, show us your business card um, <laughs> or show us proof of who you are in order to buy a T-shirt. So people were coming in and like going, I'm buying one of these T-shirts. <laughs> and um, genuinely, I mean, we did manage to sell them all. Um, and I, I, I don't feel too nervous about that because since we've, we've been invited to the palace and, and got to wear the T-shirt, so I don't feel that <laughs> by sharing this, I'm going to have another uh, lawyer. A decade makes a big touch. difference. Do you think um, the Queen might be using those spare T-shirts to sleep in? Sort of extra pajama tops for her. Well, I, I hope. I hope that it would be. Yeah, I, I, I think that they they were quite sort of. Um, they had a cool vibe to them, and then randomly, there was supposedly, supposedly via the Daily Mail. So we don't know how true it is, but that Bowie then did a mural with the Queen with a David Bowie strut, and it was weeks later. So then people started to come to the shop because they wanted these T-shirts that had originated the idea. But anyway, where I'm getting to is launching a shop offline really sucked and was set up for a business of a certain scale. What I then realised was that when you had an online store, the sales weren't obvious mm. and I'd been bought up and as a you know, young person bought up on technology, the narrative to me was that online was killing offline and, and they were sort of these uh, forces that were against each other. Mm. And what I realised when I launched this store and it was physical was that actually that allowed my online store to yeah. do really well. Now that's obvious today. Mm-hmm. We understand that you know, there's not been a single billion dollar D to C brand, direct to consumer e-commerce yeah. brand without a physical store but mm-hmm. at that point they really was seen online versus offline yeah. versus the fact that these two yeah. things would come together so the contrarian view at the time in my view was that online and offline would come together and the second thing which i still believe massively today is that if you make it suck less for people to launch a store if you make it easier if you remove the barriers to entry if it isn't a 20-year lease but someone can book something for a week or a day or a month um, and you give more people access, then more people want to participate. And, and you know, yeah. I truly believe, um, as sort of cringe as it sounds, that entrepreneurship is one of the purest forms of human self-expression. I think that people creating an idea, having that and putting it out there. And I truly believe that our streets are the arena in which anyone can participate, whether it's a, you know, an, an immigrant that's running a local shop or a, a barber's or a you know, local takeaway. When you think about high streets across the country, they really are incredibly diverse places. Mm-hmm. And I think that they, you know, people talk about culture coming from streets for a reason. And I think if we don't have that, it'll be a really sad thing. Yeah. yeah. Community from the high street. Yeah, community, culture. And, you know, we're in this re- weird world, especially now where people talk about things like the metaverse and all this stuff, <laughs> which is, you know, great and it's interesting. But, you know, in the end, in my view, at the end of the day, we've got the real world where there are still 
billions of people walking down streets every day and for some reason we're not doing a good enough job at connecting yeah. those mm -hmm. two and the view of a peer here and our mission and my belief is how do we make it possible that anyone in the digital world can show up in the offline world and actually we think that that makes culture and society and cities and everything better yeah for it which sitting here 10 years on um, is obviously very true and apparent but at the time i mean i, I work in real estate and i know at that point in time, yeah, the idea of a tenant taking a lease that wasn't minimum five years, more likely 10 or 15, just yep. wasn't appealing to landlords and it was a fixed rent plus service charge plus VAT plus insurance and rent uplifts, etc, etc. How difficult was it for you to find enough landlords to buy into the idea? Well, look, I had the idea, like you said, 10 years ago. I launched Appear Here and like raised a little bit of angel money and the website went live seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And so the business existed for seven. I would like to say that stripping out COVID, it's five, just because it makes me feel a little <laughs> bit younger. Um, but um, no, look, it was a nightmare. I mean, I met with every landlord and, and most would tell me to get out the room. I remember meeting with one landlord and they said, look, unless you do a chartered surveying degree, except that it has to happen offline and that nothing can be standardized, then maybe it will work. And I was like, well, that just sounds like a broker. And, and actually, I met with you guys. Um, so I met with one of your partners, Sarah Pass, who was lovely and, and understood what I was doing. And and we and for the I think there wasn't a single website in the world what we could find. We couldn't find yeah. any example, any evidence of anyone else doing it where you could sign a lease for a, a commercial retail unit online. Um, so we developed our own standardized contract, and and that was sort of one of the first steps. And we went to the you know, landlords, and we started to say this is the way it would work. And, you know, 99% of landlords said they wouldn't do it. And eventually, you know, we got some of the best, and then it sort of participated and more people did it. And and now, um, you know, we've got something like, Peer has got something like 250,000 brands that use the platform and will have accounts. Um, in the last, I don't know, month, we've launched shops for everyone from Gucci um, to StockX to, you know, Gymshark. So some of the biggest you know, multi-billion dollar brands to local fishmongers and, just, and amazing yeah. people that are trying to create something uh, and they all sign the same contract um you know we had kanye west book 21 stores globally on that same contract so what you're suddenly doing is you're making it possible for things that people shouldn't have to care about right yeah. if you're an entrepreneur and you're bringing your idea to life you shouldn't be getting into the detail in our view of a legal document or in mm -hmm. what are your payment terms and all of this it should just happen the same way you know, you sign your terms and conditions when you join a website. Yeah. So we make it really, really simple. And what that means is that you've got incredible people creating stuff and focusing on the thing that they do rather than all of this sort of complication. Yeah. Well, it's a barrier, isn't it? Like it is, was genuinely a barrier to people setting up any sort of small startup, particularly before there were so many, I'm thinking of sort of food as well, actually, like before there were so many sort of food trucks, you had an idea, you wanted to run your yeah. cafe or whatever your, your takeaway style was, and you just couldn't because there was nowhere for you to do it from. And you, and you know what? Not enough. What we're always asking ourselves here is how do we make it possible for more people to bring their ideas to life? Mm -hmm. What are we doing to reduce that friction? And I think that what you realise is a lot of time in the industry or in industries, especially when they've been around a long time, is people forget why they exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, retail doesn't exist just for a covenant and security of income, <laughs> which you would think so when you speak to most, even mm. if it's a broker who's out there meeting brands. Actually, why it exists is about people and community and all of those things. And, it's, yeah. and it exists for, and that's where value 
is created yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. the question is if you do that if you create more ideas if you bring new freshness if you bring stuff that people want to discover are you then intrinsically going to create value and um somewhere along the lines i think a lot of people in the industry forgot about that and if you're yeah. obsessed with that you start to go well are we reducing friction are we making this an amazing mm. experience what are we doing that's going to allow more people with better ideas to show up uh, and and you know you've got huge vacancy rates you've mm-hmm, got yeah. declining um tenants you meet with a lot of people and they go oh there's no tenants anymore no one exists <laughs> now if you use the word retail and the definition of retail is something like um the sales of goods to people or something mm-hmm, bizarre yeah. and if you look at traditional retail on a graph it is like dropping off a cliff right yeah, yeah. now if you look at commerce which is like the hottest thing that's ever existed <laughs> and you look at the definition of commerce it is something like the sales of goods to people um so basically the same definition yeah. two different words <laughs> and if you plot commerce on a graph it is exponentially rising yeah. So if you forget about the word retail and the mm. word commerce and you think about what it means, it means that today there are more merchants than ever before. Yeah. There are yeah. more people with and ideas. people are buying more and creative. more, yeah. And people are buying. And what they're buying is they're not buying from one brand. Yeah. Let's say like um, a, a Topshop or a uh, River Island or someone like that. They're not buying from one brand. They're buying from thousands of much smaller brands that are still really yeah. successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a magic thing. And it actually goes back to what retail and things were like in the, at the very beginning yeah. it's only really since the 80s where it's been about this mass consumption before yeah. then it was a much more about local um, yeah, localism local and, and people's ideas and sharing and and you know you go back to the word the very first retail location was in ancient greece <laughs> and it was called the agora and retail destinations were called agora right if you yeah. translate them malls were basically the agora and if you look at what that word means the agora translates to gathering place mm. And when you look at COVID and you think that you could buy anything at the touch of a button and mm-hmm. everyone's so miserable and you go, why are people so excited about the easing of lockdowns? It's about gathering and connecting. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think somewhere along the way, people forgot yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's, you're missing out on your community, aren't you? Through, you know, being at home, shopping online. Yeah. There's no, no access to people and we're social beings. Exactly. Because we need yeah. that. Were you surprised then when you started having some sort of like the Gucci's and the, the Kanye West sort of sign up? the big brands well i think it's amazing like we're in a really interesting place aren't we where you know at some point everyone wanted to be a rock star and then i think right now everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and that isn't an entrepreneur like you know driving a maybach and having a um a rolex watch on you i think it's about doing something that you care about and whether it's harry styles who's got his own brand at the moment or whether it's the kardashians or whether it's sort of any major uh, performing artists, the thing that they seem to talk about the most, whether it's a new hotel they've launched or whether it's a makeup brand or whatever it is, is this thing that they're doing that where they're having them. their creative expression. Yeah. And I think that, um, and, and they're creating real value through it, but there's this weird moment where everyone, no matter who you are, is an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's quite magic. Yeah, that's true actually, isn't it? I mean, because sometimes I've had that same thought and part of me thinks, how does this work? How how does it all work if, if everybody's an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. But that mindset is is an old-fashioned one because actually it works so long as everybody is buying from each other. It basically turns into kind of a barter economy, really, doesn't it? Because, you know, none of those small businesses necessarily become massive global brands, but that's fine. Yeah. So long as they're, yeah, it's a collective of small, successful ones. For sure. But you also, you know, you look at things and you go, I've got this amazing, there's an amazing girl on the pier here that launched a business called Grain and Knot and it makes... um, literally like chopping boards and stuff like that and she's got the most beautiful store and the products are amazing now you look at her 
shop that she's launched, you look at the products that she's launched and you go before Instagram, before technology, that would that business have really survived? Because, yeah. you know, there's probably not enough people in the vicinity. But actually, when you've got this niche, when you've got people following you online, when you've got people obsessing over that product, then when you create something physical, people, you know, as, as cringe as it says, it's a bit like a religion. People want to go on the pilgrimage. They want to visit yeah. the church. They want to turn up. And when they do that, they're meeting people that they want to belong with. Back to your point of community, but they're also buying into a story. Yeah. And I think that people don't want, you know, just a chopping board from, uh, you know, whatever high street brand that means nothing. They love the idea of, you know, saying and thinking that they supported someone or yeah. they've got a story mm. behind it. And yeah, completely. You look at Gen Z and more in particular now, the increase of vintage, the increase of stories where they're, there's a way that they found it and discovered it and all this stuff. And we're living in a world which is so online and yet the youngest people in society are valuing something from the past and something with much more meaning and and buying into much more micro brands that have incredibly yeah. stories yeah. behind them. Yeah. And transparency as well, isn't it? That's so Yeah, important. where it's from, yeah. who it's by and how it was made. Yeah. yeah. And and increasingly hard particularly sometimes with the internet as well. Like that's can be quite easy to obscure. So actually meeting people in person, knowing their story, speaking to them. Speaking to them. Yeah. Going back to the sort of story point in brands, do you sort of identify as a pure real estate company or do you sort of think it's there's more? No, look, we're a technology company, right? Like the biggest investment is into our technology. We don't own any real estate. You know, we're in a position in the UK where we probably have more stores than any mall company, but without owning any. Um, but we're, you know, mm. helping connect thousands of landlords to thousands of ideas and, and building that technology. You know, people forget that... In real estate, without being too boring, but in real estate, like, you know, this has been a, a, an industry built around an asset class where if you own 100 shops and you've got 100 tenants and they're on 10-year leases and with any given year you might have, I don't know, 1% to 5% vacancy, you're probably yeah. doing 5 to 15 transactions a year max. Now, if you've got 100 shops and you've got 1 to 50 tenants per store and the average lease is a year... You know, you might be doing a booking for a week, you might be doing booking for a year, but that means that minimum you've got 100 new tenants here. It might mean that you've actually got 5,000. So the whole way that the business operates completely changes. You've gone from five to 10 mm -hmm. deals to thousands. So rent collection, legals, getting keys, yeah. all of these things become logistically complex. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you've got five or ten, it's easy. So Verifying the tenants. Yeah, all of these things become really, really complicated. And, and the only way you can solve that is with technology. And the only way you can solve that is that the people who are asset owners understand they're becoming operators. Mm -hmm. um, suddenly customer service matters. So all of these things become, um, it's just a different beast. And the landlords that embrace that and remember why do they exist, we exist to create amazing locations which people want to turn up to and then these are the ways that the brands of today are acting. The landlord that build the technology and the stack for that will be those that survive. Yeah, yeah. Which which you can also see across, it's not just retail, is it? It's across the broader property spectrum. You know, that's true of offices as well. Um, so well it's every industry, right? Yeah. It's decentralisation and yeah. building onto platforms. Yeah. And, and you've seen that everywhere. And I think real estate has sort of had this view that it won't, it won't touch them. And if you look at every major asset class in real estate now, it seems to be. Yeah, and, and as you say, the, the kind of the property owners that adjust to that and embrace it are the ones that can create better value and you know it's not to say that real estate as an asset class is going but it's it's changing and it's evolving and if you try and stick with the sort of rigid approach yeah. then you'll run into problems 
And we we don't want empty shops on the high street. That's a sad thing to see. I've seen it twofold increase around me in the last year and a half. And you know, you want to fill those spaces with things and people and stories. Yeah, exactly. And and there's this weird view that's sort of like, well, that's of the past. But actually, if you go to Hackney and you go to Broadway Market and you go to Peckham and you go to Brixton, you go to these places which are super young, um, you know, high proportion of Gen Z, like people that represent maybe the future, you're going to those areas and the streets are filled and yeah. there's barely any yeah, vacancy completely. and they're doing really well. And you sort of go to those areas and people go, oh, it could look like this. Yeah. And, and there's and then you know you get people go oh well that won't exist outside of London as if if people outside of London don't enjoy <laughs> don't want yeah. to buy coffee you know, yeah. having, or, or or hanging out with their friends and you know everything might be slightly different but if if a mall can exist selling next and John Lewis then why the hell can't someone that's local that's from your area that's doing something that's meaningful and there's sort of sometimes this arrogance of people I think which is like well this is only a city thing as if only people with any kind of creativity live in a city and that's just <laughs> yeah, not the which truth. is no completely wrong and you know and there are some towns and small cities in the UK where you do have that bustling high street but it's been it's, it's required a real kind of collective effort because of the way property ownership otherwise yeah. in a high street is generally structured unless you've got a platform like a pier here which is yeah. enabling it and the thing is that good attracts good in anything right there becomes you see it with energy um without as cringe as it is but you look at even the country at the moment and we talk about 2012 and there's like this buzz and this energy and everyone's sort of excited and i've never looked at even politicians or anything as having any impact really on my life or my view and you do witness that whether it was the u.s elections or whether it was what happened here or whether it's even now and the prime minister and the decisions we have being made you ref- you realize how that does trickle down mm. to energy and I think on a much local level if you've got incredible things happening amazing energy it becomes magnetic mm-hmm. um, and so does the reverse yeah I completely agree yeah it's funny I was just thinking about um that and that they, they might even be uh, appear here stores but there's always a few places sort of on Shoreditch High Street which they do a lot of pop-ups and every now and then you'll just see a huge queue of people outside and I will I'd be walking past and going what is going on there like I just sort of there's natural need to sort of get in that queue yeah, um, and it just it su- had such a good energy about it um, and then there are other parts of London where it's just you know the complete opposite and I think yeah. it's just as you say you know it all contributes to community well I think about a great example of that and they hate me when I say it I think it annoys them but like people like Cadogan estates you know you look at the King's Road Mm -hmm. and you know I said a few years ago I said the King's Road has gone from probably one of the most culturally relevant streets in the world like Sex Pistols Rolling Stones Vivian Westwood Mary Quinn all these things came off of this one street and then it was like Reese Gap like the most boring street and like (laughs) you know boring and then they're like, how dare you say that? And they're like, it was. <laughs> and then it's got huge vacancy. Yeah. And like, no, we don't. And you're like, everyone's <laughs> driving past, they can see. And then COVID happens and, you know, the, the people that said they'll never do pop-ups have done, they've just filled the street with year leases or whatever they've had to do. And honestly, they've done the most phenomenal job. Mm. And you look at what they've done with Pavilion Road and it's amazing. It's like one of the, you know, it's... People go, oh, well, what you said about East London won't work there. They've literally created, like, a bougie Broadway market, and it yeah. is beautiful. Is that and, the one behind um, Peter yeah, Jones? Yeah, in the middle muse, like, yeah. exactly. And they've done it so well. Yeah. And then you look at, you go down the King's Road, and they've got Rixo, and they've got this brand, they've got that brand, they've got the first Soho Home, and they've done all this stuff. And you're like, 
this street's really relevant mm-hmm. and I'm getting in a, you know, getting on the tube or getting in a cab and I'm going, going all the way there. to yeah. Chelsea to walk down the King's Road. And yeah. hopefully they like me now because I'm saying it. But the point <laughs> is, is that when it was bad, it was bad. And when it's good, it's good. Mm-hmm. But what's good is they've done flexibility. They've yeah. let more people to participate and they've given more people, you know, opportunity. And then the street's alive and the King's Road's busy yeah. and there's no vacancy. And people using that street as an example of decline and just by giving more people an opportunity yeah. to show up, the crowd's back. Yeah. Um, so it just shows you that, you know, I think that there's a lot of retail that's under-demolished and a lot of retail that is traditional retail that was resistant retail yeah. that didn't want to change. And the moment that you start letting in this sort of resilient retail, these young people, these different ideas, giving people the opportunity to c- contribute, if if Kandagan can do, can do it, who are a traditional estate and they've done it, I think, phenomenally well, then it shows you that um, anyone should be able to change and yeah. wake up to the future. The, yeah, no, completely yeah. agree. And I think that the only thing holding back other high streets is the fact, the lack of common ownership. You know, Cadogan do own their, their estate, um, whereas most high streets' ownership is so broken up. I know some local authorities are trying to essentially buy the freeholds but what's well, so you, you don't have a combined vision because no, there's no yeah exactly but you know what, what i would street. say is i think that's a fair point but what i would say is in a way what you've seen recently is a lot of these estates that were being very traditional you know not just traditional but being quite guarded have got to a place now where by letting by basically opening it up more they're really bringing them back to life and, and marlebone's the same mm-hmm. and um what I would say is a few years ago, 2019, 2018, I felt that a lot of those areas were really huge vacancies, not mm-hmm. doing that well. And yet the neighbourhoods were thriving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at Hackney, you look at Peckham, you look at Brits, you look at those areas we mentioned, there isn't consolidated ownership. No, that's very true. And they that's do incredibly well. And you go to most cities outside of London and no other city really in the world has this sort of idea that people that inherited land <laughs> hundreds of years yeah. ago um, <laughs> from the royals would somehow still get to dictate what goes on. But they have amazing cultures. So I think that, you know, I think that the estates, and I, to be fair, I don't think that you would see that drastic change that you've seen in Chelsea if it wasn't for Cadogan. And I think they've done an incredible job. I say again, they've done an incredible <laughs> job. Um, but, um, and I really think they have. But at the flip side, um, I think that what sometimes creates that decline is the lack, is, you know, one individual. Mm in whatever organisation dictating who should show up. And does that individual understand streetwear or does that individual understand what's super current right now? And there's Mm -hmm. something about when you let the market decide that it comes back. And um, I think what we've got to have more of a realisation in real estate is that prices will fluctuate, that you've got to open stuff up to bring, you know, like the street we just mentioned, prices were quite high. They've they've done very affordable things which everyone's Mm. had to do because of covid and it's brought life back and then the the value will follow value exactly yeah absolutely yeah wikipedia calls you a real estate disruptor (laughs) how do you feel about that term disruptor i think look disruptor look it's true in the sense that we had you know if you go out and and, you know some of the traditional landlords you know hated what we were doing And, and funny enough i sat with a few recently and they were like look when you came into my offices in 2016 and you said we had to do these legals and we had to do this and it was going to be short term. So, you know, we sort of looked at you and went... Get out. Like, who are you to yeah. tell us sort of vibe? And, you know, if you sit with someone and they're, you know, they do certain things a certain way and they've done it for 20 years and you say, well, we want to do that online now. We won't use your legal document. There is an idea which is, it's a question, right? Is that arrogance? Who the hell are you? Or is it 
vision or is it competent? And mm. you can argue it both ways, yeah. right? It probably needs a little bit of both. Um, but that's disruption, right? If someone feels yeah. that, you know, yeah. you, people feel frustration, feel anger about these things. Someone telling you to do something differently annoys people, um, especially in this country and especially in real estate where it's yeah. quite traditional. Yeah. So you've got to be willing to, I think disruption's about having a view of how something could be done. Um, you know, if you sit there and I, I would look at data for the last 20 years that showed lease lengths declining every year, yeah. no matter what the yeah, economic yeah. cycle was. And you'd sit with the CEO of a top, you know, one of the biggest mall companies. Say that this now, is happening. The market's and you'd be going like, oh, No, you'd show it this and they go, the that's, they go, that's 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 not true. <laughs> and, and you're like, well, it's not my data. I didn't meet these people. But, <laughs> didn't but, make it up. But you sort of, so I think disruption is about when the consensus is a view and your view is different. Mm-hmm. And being prepared to, you know, walk out the room and being disliked for a vision. On the flip side, I think what you then got to do, and I always say this to our team, whenever you're doing something disruptive, whenever you've got a view of something, you've got to try and not be disruptive for the sake of it. So how can you be polite? How can you try and like, even more so, you've got to like every email or every interaction at the end of it have good manners and be in a certain way because the instant reaction from a lot of people that you're trying to do something different against is going to be like how can we justify our dislike yeah yeah Um, Yeah, it hackles up exactly whereas actually when you're sat there and you're having those same conversations with the entrepreneurs or the fashion designers or so and they want you to succeed they're part of that vision you go okay is this to do with who we are or is this to do with what we stand for and i think anything in life that you're trying to change what we forget is that most people don't like change. And I think the yeah. key thing for all of mm-hmm. us, myself included now that I've been doing this for a few years, is you, know, you have someone young come into the room and they'll be like, why aren't we doing this? Yeah. And you'll be thinking in your head, well, we tried that or yeah. what do yeah. you know? You don't understand. And you've got to remind to yourself that, you know, <laughs> one of my investors um, who's amazing, Natalie Massonet, who founded Netta Porter, I remember she said that, you know, she went and she met with, you know, the people at, all the big magazines, she worked at Vogue in different places and she was going and saying, you know, you need to do this idea of commerce and content and it all being online. And everyone was like, well, luxury isn't online. <laughs> and told her she was an idiot. And she went and set up Nether Porter and obviously is insanely <laughs> successful, but Nether Porter <laughs> led not an idiot. the future. And you go, how many of those brands or how many of those publications would be in a very different situation now? And, and you know, she always says she's got a note on her desk that reminds her that she's now those people. Yeah. And I think it's really hard. It's not natural to have that open mind but we've got to remember that the world's moving so fast yeah. Yeah. that you know nfts and all this stuff i've n- i'm trying to understand <laughs> i have no understanding of it That's, yeah like i was just in miami at, at um the art show and it drove me mad every dinner being talked about it i literally <laughs> and i had to be like do you know what if i'd have listened more to people about crypto five years ago i'd be doing a lot better yeah. so you've got to have that yeah. open mind and we've all got to remind ourselves and sometimes when you have that instant dislike for something is it because somebody's challenge yourself on it? Like why? Yeah, challenge your perspective. And as yeah. humans, we all want the world to make sense, and we want to be in control. Yeah. And anything that changes that scares yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, because um, we want to be comfortable. We're creatures of habit. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and you look at the real estate industry, and you go, you know, some of those big landlords that were running those small companies, you know, in 2016, their market caps were at the top they'd ever been. Mm. And now they're trading some of them at 70, 80 percent below asset value. Yeah. So you look at these places, and you go, you know. One day we all are cock of the walk, and the next day we're a feather duster. And I think, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good say. I've not heard that before. Do you find it frustrating when you're talking to people who, who sort of are sort of old fashioned in their views in this sense? No, no, because I don't find it frustrating. I find it 
I don't find it frustrating at all because I think that if you have those debates, like often like us as well, like we've sat there, you know, like I've got, I, with a peer here, I had a view of how this should be work and how it should be and this would really be successful. And I've seen that when landlords really embrace it, it does completely work and we get high occupancies and we make more entrepreneurs launch their ideas and we actually, landlords create more value. Mm -hmm. They make more than market rents. On the flip side, if landlords don't always embrace it, then who's right? You know, I'm not right because if they yeah. didn't embrace it, it doesn't matter what yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. So yeah. I think my realisation has also been like, okay, well, hang on a minute. When you have those really interesting debates, and you're like, no, but I think it would really work this way. Well, that person's also right. If if they don't believe it and lots mm. of people aren't going to believe it, you've got to find yeah. that middle ground. And I think around. whether it's politics or whether it's... Um, debates with friends, whether it's anything, you know, because of social media, because of so much stuff, we are so polarised where it's like it's one way or the other, yeah. right? It's my view of how a peer here should work and then retail will survive yeah. or it's your view of the old way in the past. And actually, I think if you embrace sometimes the the the, the people that disagree with you in so much more, and I wish sometimes mm. I'd have really gone there and gone, well, hang on a minute, why do they hate this? And it's not that the data that long-term lease is declining is a lie and it's not that this... But if I really understood that, what's the middle ground? And would that have meant that even more landlords mm-hmm. would have yeah, adopted? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, right now, coming out of COVID, I remember we had so many landlords that were like, Ross, we get it. We're, we're going to do this for <laughs> yeah. And they didn't sign up and they wouldn't be using it in the same way. Mm-hmm. And you'd sit there and go, well, hang on a minute. Back to that point I made before. You're used to having 100 shops with four deals a year or five deals a year. Now you've got to do maybe thousands. Of course, this isn't going to work. Yeah. So what can yeah, we yeah. do to help you and... And how do we do this in a different way? And, and as we've done that, we've seen that we've created so much more success for those landlords and those landlords are so much happier. So yeah. I think with everything, it's about, you know, yes, disrupting, having a view, being clear, but then going back to it and go, hang on a minute, how do I really get you on side? And how yeah. do we work together and how do we be partners? Yeah, collaborative um, disruption. Yeah, and yeah, just more understanding from all parts. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think an understanding. I mean, a lot of a lot of resistance comes from a place of fear, doesn't it? Ultimately, people just don't people may not realise that, but it's it's the fear of change and it's the fear of somehow being unmasked or somehow getting it wrong, you know, and being responsible for something happening that's bad. Yeah, and so if you really kind of try and understand exactly what that that fear is, then you then you can start having a And it's super cultural, right? Like if you're sat and you're selling to tech entrepreneurs and it's like all about disruption and failing yeah. fast and that stuff, people take a bigger risk. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think culturally in different industries as well, it's about going, well, hang on a minute. You know, if you make a big risk and you get it wrong when you're owning an asset that's hundreds of millions yeah. and it's only about a small percentage, then actually that's, that's yeah, catastrophic, big, whereas yeah. in something else it isn't. So I think that it's about understanding that and and then if you are in that sort of industry, understanding that that's your predisposition and what can you mm-hmm. do to challenge yeah. your own behaviour and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, no, completely. Sadly, we're probably coming to the, near, the end of our time with you. I've just got a couple... I've got one, one question that I was thinking about, which is that, you know, you, you said you kind of generally just set out to have fun and see what happens, but you've actually because of the success of a peer here, it's been going now for several years. Do you think that's where your future lies for the sort of immediate term? Or have you got loads of other ideas still kind of bubbling away? Is oh, the next, I've got the other next ideas, startup but just I around the that, corner? No, I'm, I'm trying to... Look, we had a really, like, lots of people, like, you know, a really difficult time, but also lucky time, right? Like, I was fortunate that... I mean, super lucky, Touchwood. At the, at the time, I probably didn't see it as very lucky. But I had my birthday 
the final weekend of February <laughs> in 2020. And we just finished a thing where we'd flown our whole teams over and we did like a, you know, we call it a global gathering where London, Paris, LA, all these teams came in and they learned about the year and our plan. And we stood there and we went through the year and we had people like Thomas Heffering, all these amazing people talking about how amazing a peer here was and it's an amazing event. <laughs> and then I went away and I had my birthday. And the day I got back from my birthday, we signed a deal that, you know, raised a big chunk of money for the business, valued it in you know, over a hundred million. It was like this amazing moment, a milestone. And we were doubling the business already yeah. and we were on a really good growth trajectory. And six days after this deal, six days, not even a week, I'd shut every single office. I was at home. I had COVID really <laughs> badly. Um, and while having COVID, I was in bed with my laptop with a spreadsheet of who we'd have to let go in the next yeah. 24 hours just to survive. Gosh. Um, and to go through that in a week... What, it wasn't you know, months, it was a week from this is the most amazing deal, sitting with your team and this mm -hmm. is the plan for the year, to we've shut Paris, we've shut New York oh actually our revenues have dropped by not you know I watched a thing on the um, financial crisis and it supports about Lehman Brothers and, and it dropping 35% overnight ours dropped 95% overnight yeah. and it stayed that way for six months and then you know we came back for three or four months and then it went back for another year, yeah. so the fact we're here I mean, people read books about startups right? and it says grit and resilience. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we're here. And when it came out in the summer, you know, we got the business back to where it was in 2019. We got it back growing really fast. Started to hire lots of people again, start to open up new cities. And then December got hit again. We've on the yeah. So, look, we're in a position now where we've got uh, a business that is back to where it was in 2019. Mm -hmm. It's growing faster um, we've learned a ton. Yeah. You know, we did the same with less than half the people. So we're more efficient. And we're looking at it going, how do we build this in a better way? And yeah. you know, it's funny, when you're running and the business is you know, more than doubling every year, it was going crazy. I used to always think to myself, oh, my God, if you just pause yeah. for a few months, mm. I could just iron everything out, how much yeah. better would things be? And, I mean, I wish I'd never even <laughs> yeah, yeah, put yeah, that out there. fate there. Because whatever, you know, after witnessing it, I'm, I'm happy just it being a mess. No, keep running. Um, but genuinely, what that did give me out of, you know, I think mean, looking at everything as a trying to find the positive, right, was that it gave us this opportunity to look at everything that was going. Look at the land and go, well, hang on a minute, we've said this for years, it's clear that this is the way the world's going. Mm -hmm. Why haven't some that we really enjoy and we really want to work with embraced us yeah and we've come out with again. new products we've yeah. come up with new things that have got insane traction and the business on paper with what we're doing is a much better business than it was before and so to your point about what do i want to do well i believe in the mission of our business more now than i ever have i believe that what we stand for makes more sense now than ever i think that over the last two years what you have seen is more entrepreneurs created more commerce brands created what we're seeing as lockdowns are eased is that those guys that have done really well online are wanting to do offline more, mm, not less mm -hmm. because of it. And we've all gone through this collective experience where, you know, I'd sort of say something that sounded like a bit like, I don't know, like wooey and like weird. And I was like, oh, you know, it's community. And it's all coming together. <laughs> and people would be like, it's a shop. And, <laughs> and then when the world's being that, shut, then, they're yeah. like, oh my God. Yeah. How important, you know, we say things like my pub and my shop and my street. And we have this ownership over these mm -hmm. things, but we had, but we really acted like they weren't part of mm. us. And we realized that when they were gone, they really made up why we wanted to live in a city mm. or yeah. how much yeah. happiness it brings yeah. to our life. And that I believe in more than ever before. So my focus, 100% on the peer here, 100% on them. Um, really making this work as much as I can 
And I think it makes more sense today than ever. And we want to work with more landlords because we think that, you know, places like London, places like New York, and I've gone to them, it is, you realise, the thing that makes you sad in the moments like COVID was your favourite cafe or yeah. your yeah. things being yeah. closed. Yeah, and yeah. Just every, that hello when you go in and get yeah, coffee. And every single day. shop that was empty and every shadow that was down wasn't just a shop or a restaurant that was important to me, but you realise it's someone's livelihoods yeah. and it's their Completely, family, yeah. it's everything else. And, and I truly believe that we're in a world where whether it's climate change and you think about the 15-minute city and how important that is mm-hmm. and it all comes down to localism. When you think about huge wealth inequality, it all comes down to entrepreneurship and independence. Stuff like yeah. that. I think yeah. that there's so the many fundamental things that matter that actually I think we sit in the centre of and I think that um, it's all of our responsibility from me to the landlords to think how do we make streets um more reflective of the people that live there Mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely so our final question just very quickly knowing what you know now what would you do again and what thing would you avoid oh it's a good it's a very hard one i don't know but one thing that i would remind myself of more and i'm gonna remind myself of is we're just not in control Mm -hmm. and i've always had this viewpoint that you know if you work really hard and you just focused amazing things can happen. I do believe that because that played a big part to date. But, you know, before COVID, one random day I got bitten by a tick (laughs) and I got this thing called Lyme's disease and I ended up going to hospital for every day for six months to have IV before going to work. And I remember ending that and going, and luckily business did well and it was all whatever kept going, but it was tough. But I remember doing that and going, Ross, you're not in control. Anything could happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Well, the moment I was better, I was like, Ross, you are in control. This is all amazing. <laughs> and then six weeks later, a pandemic happens and, shut everything, and you're like, oh, my no, God. Turns out it wasn't like, in control. <laughs> remember the lesson. So I think my view is that, um, you know, luck plays such a big part in things. But I think it's also about remembering that you're not in control mm-hmm. and, and then bending with whatever happens. Because, you know, I think we're here today. Because we tried to, you know, we adapted, but we also didn't get too shocked, mm. too spooked. And I think if you remember that you're not in control of everything and you go back to those first principles of why do we exist, what's our mission, does it still make sense, whatever that might be, then I think that um, that would probably be a bigger thing and not beating yourself up too much either way, right? You know, yeah. when it's really high, ignore it. And when it's really low, ignore it and yeah. sort of stay in the middle. Yeah. Well, very sadly, that is all we've got time for today. Ross Bailey, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Rena Marshall and our producer, Sophie Black. Generation Now was brought to you by Forsters. To find out more about us, go to forsters.co.uk. And thank you very much for listening. 